Welcome to Unfiltered, our newest program in our weekly Fixing Healthcare podcast series. Joining us each month is Dr. Zubin Damanya, known to many as ZDog MD. For 25 minutes, he and Robbie will engage in unscripted and hard-hitting conversation about art, politics, entertainment, and much more. As nationally recognized physicians and healthcare policy experts, they'll apply the lessons they extract to medical practice. Then I'll pose a question for the two of them as the patient based on what I've heard. Robbie, why don't you kick it off? Hi, Zubin. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, brother. Time is an illusion, but I'll I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> this is the time <laughs> of the year when people make resolutions. Did you make any such commitments? You know, this year I actually did make a commitment. I want to understand and seek out truth wherever I can. So that's my commitment is to try to find what's actually going on. That's that's my hope. And how are you going to figure out that it's truth and not fantasy or fiction? Ah, it's a very good question. I think it's discriminating between what's a thought about what's going on and what's actually happening in this moment. That That's what I mean by truth. Like what's the truth of this sort of living moment? And uh, I'm going to try to dive into that and then dive back out into the relative world of <laughs> the stories we tell about uh, truth. So, and I think we live in both worlds. Is that similar to mindfulness or is this something different? It's on that spectrum. I think it's kind of, uh, on the spectrum of realization, like what's act, what actually is going on in this moment when you strip away all the thought identity around it and the stories we tell. So what's actually happening in the rawest sense? And then you can go back and look at the at the stories and kind of enjoy them for what they are. But uh, it is a practice. It's an ongoing practice. You never really quite get there. It's a mystery. You know, increasingly in healthcare, people are struggling seeing that the economic future is going to be problematic. As they search for answers, uh, lifestyle medicine type activities, better diet, more exercise, meditation, uh, those kind of opportunities that we know have been proven to diminish the likelihood of diabetes, and the likelihood of various cardiovascular events. How can we get and help patients to engage in these? Because I'm sure many of them had New Year's resolutions around these activities. You know what I think is in medicine and healthcare, historically, we've been pretty bad about education, education with regards to patients, but then also we don't drink the Kool-Aid ourselves. So, so, you know, we're the most neurotic, anxious, non-present, stressed out kind of creatures. And we've talked, you know, repeatedly about the culture of medicine on this show, and you've made it a kind of a, a centerpiece of what you talk about. So we don't even lead by example in many ways. In some we do, uh, in some we do, but in others we don't. And uh, what I think is, you know, I recently had a conversation with someone at Kaiser, actually a friend, and they're trying to figure out how can we educate our 
most high-risk patients to allow them to have the tools to keep them out of the ER, whether it's you know understanding a continuous glucose monitor if they have diabetes and realizing that actually wearing that, some data shows that you can actually lower your hemoglobin A1C by understanding what different foods and stress and exercise do to your sugar. It actually gives you an immediate biofeedback, but the, the devices can be a little complicated. So how do we educate them? Do we make a YouTube video? Do we do a funny rap song? What, like, what do we do? And so I think actually a lot of people just need that teaching and they need it to come from trusted people. And interestingly, people still trust healthcare professionals, particularly nurses, even more so than doctors. So I think mobilizing them to use their own voice, their own creativity to educate patients, whether it's through you know YouTube or social media or in the clinic or carving out spaces to do that or helping with training and how you can do that to give them a voice, I think that would be very helpful. It's been said that after 21 days, an activity becomes a habit and becomes somewhat difficult to break. Others have disagreed. What do you think? Is that is that a path we need to be taking, forcing people through 21 days of exercise or better nutrition with the belief that it'll then last for the next 11 plus months? Well, I do think the power of conditioning, of habit, of of it's it's almost like, you know, I guess the ancients used to call it karma. It's like cause and effect. The more you do something, the more it begets you doing it, especially if it has some positive positive feedback loop. And behaviors are no exception. You know, smoking is that way. You get a you get a stimulus, a feedback, a reward. I mean, Skinner was doing this bad back in the day with his Skinner box. So I think there is that conditioning that does happen. In in many ways, actually, Robbie, meditation is a kind of conditioning. It's a conditioning to teach you habitually to be open, to open to the present moment or to what's actually happening and to recognize thoughts and things like that. It's a kind of conditioning. So yes, I think, I don't know about 21 days or the exact number, but I do think that this is actually a huge part of how humans behave. It's, I mean, it's how we train animals. Um, We just think we're better than animals, but we really are not that much. We just overthink it. As you were talking about that Kaiser example, I thought of Marshall McLuhan and his famous idea that the medium is the message. You know, you're a video podcast host. You have a huge social media presence. You speak and sing for audiences. You were the CEO of an in-person clinic. How do you see these different mediums affecting, I'll say, your message and the message of healthcare professionals in general? I think it's crucial. You have to go where patients are. You know, uh, it's one thing for like a large healthcare organization to say, okay, yeah, okay, yeah, we're going to use YouTube and we're going to make educational videos and we're going to get to push them out to patients through our email lists. Okay, that's great. Then you look at the video and it is the most boring, stilted, scripted, poorly produced, poorly executed. And you're like, wait, 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 hold on. Physicians are the most creative, just imaginative people before they go to med school. How is it that we turn that into this? And then we wonder why it's not working. And then they say, well, maybe we'll get a consultant to get SEO happening and maybe we'll do this and this and this. And it's like, nope, make it authentically relatable, connect with your patients, use the medium where they are. If it's like a lower socioeconomic status, Latinx population say, that happens to be the phone, the mobile phone. That's where, that's what we found at our clinic, right? And so go where the patients are, but then you know, understand that medium and understand how to maximize it. I mean, it took me some time to figure this out. So you can't expect doctors just to jump and understand it, but give them the, the training and the tools to do it. There are people who know how to do this very, very well. When we look at the question of telemedicine, you have two different mediums, one the patient's sitting in front of you, and one the patient is on a screen in front of you. 
do you think the difference in outcome, and by that I mean both the uh, clinician's success at making a diagnosis, as well as the patient's willingness to follow through, uh, do you see these two medium as being equivalent? Do you see one as definitely being better? How do you put the, those into the context of what medicine should be embracing? Uh, this is a this is a question I'd love also to throw back to you when I'm done because this one is is a very nuanced one. I think they're complementary. I don't think they're identical. Uh, I think that they serve the common purpose of trying to get the patient the care they need when and how they need it. So the most con the best quality at the most convenience for the lowest cost is what we're trying to shoot for with the best outcome. And in, in some cases, telehealth is, is even better than in person because it's so convenient. You can see the patient in their home. Um, it's, it's, there's certain things that are visually very, very good that some things work better by phone, just by audio, and you don't need the video. Um, but there's a conditioning that happens with medicine. Like if you're resistant to one or the other, it's gonna be much harder and it, patients also need to be open. So it, it depends on the patient as well. Some just don't can't wrap their heads around it initially. So maybe it's an idea of, again, conditioning, forcing, not forcing, training new habits. Um, but I'm curious what you think because it also probably varies a little bit by specialty and by situation. I have to give you a somewhat long answer for two reasons. First because technology is a passion of mine, and second, because I believe that it is so grossly underutilized. When we did, when I was the CEO in Kaiser Permanente, we did a lot of telemedicine, and we had data on patient satisfaction. And when the patient saw a physician through telemedicine video versus seeing that same doctor in the office, they were 10% more satisfied. And that's really surprising. Most doctors would say the opposite. And I think the reason isn't really the medium per se in that way, but it is the convenience for the patient. Yes. You know, if you step back and look at what is the most common problems patients have today, it's chronic disease. And as we know, chronic disease happens every day. And what's the way we learned to take care of, in quotes, patients, regardless of disease, it's on a periodic basis. We see them, we say come back in three months, four months, some particular calendar-driven process. I don't believe that we can manage chronic disease on a three or four-month basis. Yes, we can order lab tests. Yes, we can make a suggestion about insulin based upon those lab tests. But I think the engagement with the patient is so crucial. It doesn't have to be with a doctor, it could be with a health educator, it could be with a nurse or nurse practitioner, a lot of people could be having the interaction. But I think it's that frequency. And I also believe that telemedicine takes people into their lives and into their homes. I want to look around your kitchen. When I see all the pretzels and potato chips, I now understand why your blood pressure is so difficult to control. When I look inside your refrigerator, and I can't find any fruits or vegetables. I have a sense of your nutrition being subpar and opportunities to improve it. And it's also where I think that, and this is what I like, what you said very much about this working together of factors that I think there's other technology. You know, Alexa could ask you every day about your diet. Alexa could remind you to go out and exercise each day. Alexa could tell you that you have to have a particular test to, to diagnose or prevent cancer. 
and then I ask you whether you want to have the test scheduled. Alexa can remind you to take your medications on time, which is one of the leading causes of problems. Imagine having a, I'll call it a clinician assistant in every patient's home. I believe that could dramatically improve both clinical outcomes from better management and better adherence to the recommendations of the doctor. So I am a big proponent that the office visit needs to be reserved for two situations. First, the first visit with someone. You have to have the person-to-person -person contact to establish that relationship. And then number two, the situations in which you need to stick a knife or a needle in someone, or obviously do a physical exam for a particular problem that is difficult to diagnose. Outside of that, I think most of medicine should be done virtually. I actually think it should be done virtually, not just by individual clinicians, but by teams and groups of individuals based upon the desires of the patient. I think we have so many opportunities we're not taking advantage of. We're using a 20th century model and getting overwhelmed in the 21st century. That's my overview of what I think is a tremendous opportunity for medicine in the future. See, I just pitched it to you and you, you bat it out of the park. I mean, <laughs> see, no, this is, exa this is exactly, it's exactly the philosophy of what, what we at Turntable Health were trying to do in terms of developing a relationship with a patient, not transactional episodic care. So I love what you said there, which is you, you take all these implements and you generate relationship and it doesn't have to be a, a physician. It can be a health coach. It can be a, a nurse practitioner. It can be a pharmacist. And you go where the patient has that convenience. It doesn't surprise me that patients were more pleased with that convenience factor. The one thing I will say, I, lo I love that you said the first visit has to be in person because you, you're establishing that relationship and you need energetically to be in the room with that person. And then I will say, I think there are certain things that really do like mental health and stuff I think can be done virtually, but there's some element of it that feeling the energy of that other person in person to someone who's sensitive and trained, it is, it is valuable. But again, defer to the, where the, where the patient is. If the patient has trouble, even with public transport, like why would you do that to them to force them to come in? That is such a backwards philosophy. So yeah, I love this. And, and I, I also like the idea of the, of the assistant, the virtual assistant. It's interesting because Alexa is apparently losing a ton of money for Amazon like billions of dollars because they can't figure out how to monetize it. And yet they're sitting on what could potentially be like a healthcare gold mine in terms of health. So, you know, there's a direction for Alexa that makes a lot of sense. You know, you could tell my dad, like, you know, you, you've gained this much weight. You may want to, you know, consider talking to your doctor about increasing your Lasix or whatever it is. Um, all the things you pointed, I think it'd be very valuable. Yeah. And I haven't, I didn't even talk about the ability to link together the, uh, patient monitoring devices with Alexa, with AI. Uh, maybe we'll get to that in a second. But let me just mention one thing that, again, when I was the CEO, I was very, very um, committed that no patient would ever have a virtual visit visit offer, uh, created without being given a choice. Do you want to see your physician or the consultant or whoever it might be in person, or would you like to have it done through telemedicine? 90% of the time, patients chose telemedicine. Mm -hmm. So much mm -hmm. more convenient, so much easier to do. And of course, if that visit meant that coming in in person would be adding a lot of value, then individuals were very, very positive. But I'd like to double back. Now, you used the word truth at the beginning. And something that I have been, I'll say, obsessed by 
is ChatGPT. Have oh, you yes, seen me it? too. Yes, I've been it? using it. It is nuts, nuts. I have a lot of thoughts on this. Yeah, back to you, man. <laughs> but let me ask you, <laughs> have you asked it to write a song in the um, style of Z-Dog MD? I asked it the following. I have a character, Doc Vader, burned out physician in the Darth Vader mask. I just did an episode with him where he just rants and raves and responds to questions live and so on. And I told chat GPT, listen, I have this character, Doc Vader. He's on YouTube. You can search him. I would love you to write a dialogue with him and another Star Wars character, Jar Jar Binks, about something that Doc Vader would talk about. And it came back with the perfect script between Doc Vader and Jar Jar. And Doc Vader, Jar Jar says, Misa think Doc Vader that you, you know, you, you, you look very stressed. And Doc Vader says, well, the imperial bureaucracy, the insurance industry, very demanding electronic records. He goes through the whole thing. And, you know, I've got me really feeling down Jar Jar. So yes, I'm pretty burned out. I couldn't believe it. This thing basically is putting together scripts that are really plausible. Like it's not something I could release, but it was it was so good, it, it was frightening. Um, so I'm curious if you've played with it or your thoughts on this. I have not actually done it myself, but I've spent, I don't know, hundreds of hours uh, reading about it, learning about it, because I believe that it is the future of medicine. And the reason I think that is that the underlying architecture is one of prediction. So it has a word and it, based upon experience, can predict the next thing, that next word that's gonna appear. And I think that's the way that we work as doctors. I mean, I would love to be able to follow you around the hospital with some recording device, because my best guess is that when I tell you that there's a low oxygen, a change in blood pressure, a change in pulse, that you already know the next thing you're going to do. And you consistently do it. What it's going to be may vary by the specific details, but how you now get that added information, and now you layer on top of it the laboratory, because that's going to change it some. Maybe there's a couple of questions you ask the patient, but I suspect that most of what you do as a hospital-based physician is based upon numbers that come along. And I think that chat GPT could probably do an amazing job as a hospital-based physician. I know the hospital-based physicians are gonna go crazy when they hear me say that, but I think <laughs> that it offers, because it is the way we think as physicians and the same in the office. You know, we learn algorithms and what does ChatGPT do? It's an algorithmic approach where step one leads to two to three to four, and you can just follow it down until, as you say, you create that dialogue that's out there. Okay, so this is the heart of the issue. And and I used to feel very differently about this and I'm starting to change my mind seeing chat GPT and we talked about truth in the beginning. The more I, I meditate in, on, into experience, you realize, there's no agent making anything happen. There's just experience happening. And there's the, there's the illusion that there's somebody doing it. When you look at chat GPT, it's doing the same exact thing as the human mind. You said doctors, I'll say any human. Thoughts are arising from nowhere. They're coming from your unconscious, from conditioning, from causes and conditions beyond your understanding. And words are coming out of your mouth. In medicine, those words happen to be conditioned by extensive training, algorithms, patterns of thinking. And sometimes that's wrong, right? Um, so you can actually train the GPT to do it 
correctly. Um, you almost don't want it to go through all the medical literature because it's going to find a bunch of trash. But but the idea that the, the GPT is actually just doing the same thing that human consciousness is doing, I think is valid. Now, where I think there may be some deviation is humans also experience um, emotion. And that emotion charges and creates uh, particular valences to our thought patterns. So what the GPT might do is strip the emotional content out, or it might mimic the patterns of emotional behavior from seeing enough data. That data is generated by humans. It might pick it up just by by an epiphenomenon of mimicking human data. So it's really it's fascinating to actually dive into what is even what, what is even our thought. What is our thought process? How does that even come about? Um, and GPT just holds up a mirror and goes, "Yeah, it's kind of like this." <laughs> and you go, "Oh wait, I thought I was this," but it's really just this this beautiful unfolding. Oh, there's no question there was a. I'll say a major controversy a year or two ago about um, this was AI being biased. And there was a study that came out of United Health and they uh, inadequately gave resources to black patients. And of course, the reality was they did that because the data came out of humans who were biased. I think yep. the opportunity for, I'll say, AI to be able to point out the biases and move towards correct them is going to be quite uh positive once we get there. Before we get there though, you know, I it was interesting. I don't know if you read about the Tesla that went over the cliff at mm -hmm. Devil's Slide about, I don't know, a week or two ago. Mm -hmm. Physician, radiologist, family of four, by all yeah, accounts, beautiful, right. happy family. Yeah. And all my radars, the minute they say beautiful, happy physician family, my radar starts binging that, okay, so what's wrong here? Yeah. Um, before that, well, the assumption that was made, and actually one of the listeners who listened to the, a show we did about six months ago around this topic actually wrote to us and said, there it goes. Obviously, this was the self-driving Tesla and the machine made a mistake. We should get rid of that processes and insist that people drive. I want you to tell <laughs> listeners <laughs> what was discovered two days later. <laughs> yeah, the, the the discovery two days later is this, this was true. The the difference is the machine was the physician father driving the car, who we don't know the details of it, but the the whole entire family survived this massive plunge, hundreds of feet off Devil Slide near my house. Actually, I mean, just it's, it's owl, as the owl flies, like ten miles from my house, and. Um, they clearly were in the hospital at Stanford and awake and cognizant. And somebody said, uh, must have said something. And the police arrested the driver, the father, who happens to be a radiologist, and uh, for for murder, basically attempted murder. And uh, so there you there you have it. So there was a malfunctioning machine, but as 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 Kurt Vonnegut wrote in his book Breakfast of Champions, the machine was the human. I wanted to write back. I didn't that maybe we should ban humans from driving because they are <laughs> more likely to do this tragedy that no machine would ever choose to do driving off the road and risking the life of the uh, spouse and the two children. So uh, Absolutely. I, didn't, I, I, I didn't write that. But that takes <laughs> us back to the uh, clinical part. And again, I know I'm you know stepping on a lot of uh, egos, but maybe... The job of Chat GPT in the hospital is to stop clinicians from making mistakes because yeah. we don't follow the 
known ways to maximize patient safety, and we harm people as a consequence. Uh, we don't always check to make sure it's the right medication or being given through the right route, and we cause significant harm. Um, you can go as far as you want in the middle of the night. We don't always respond as quickly as we might to a change in a monitoring number in a way that would improve the likelihood of the patient doing well and surviving. It's often a delayed response. I could imagine this type of oversight uh, actually improving clinical practice significantly, but I wonder how physicians will see having to answer to an AI application, no matter how good it might be. Uh, it's clear that we're going to be ego defended about this. I mean, a hundred percent, because not only does our ego depend on it, but our livelihood depends on it. And in, in that sense, unless you change something, because there are certain human interactions that are just healing in itself, like just having a conversation with someone where someone is compassionate, having empathy is there holding the hand computer can't do that. So let's take that out of it. But the other stuff that you're pointing at, like, for example, you go in a room, get, take a history, do the data that, that chat GPT can write your entire note. It'll write a better note than you could ever write. It'll take out all the redundancy. It'll pull in the vitals and any other, you know, uh, ancillary technological data, and it'll even write an assessment and plan probably better than you could. It's not there yet, but it, it, it will be. <laughs> and so that's a direct threat to everything we train to do, all, all that stuff. So nobody's going to take that lightly. You know, my, my friend who's a pretty realized meditator says, never underestimate the forces of delusion. And by delusion, he just means ego. And, and this is one of those things, like even if the thing did it better than us, we're gonna argue for years that it's not, that there's, here's loopholes, like here's like, oh, maybe we shouldn't let the self-driving car do this or you know whatever it is, it's, it's, it's gonna be the same thing. What you're reminding me of is Moneyball. You know, you had the scouts who were going around watching potential talent. They thought they were really good at their job. And then uh, Billy Bean comes along with his smart um, analyst, data analyst, and realizes that, no, they have all these biases that get in the way. You know, someone who's tall and lean uh, is going to be seen as a better hitter than someone who's short and squat, even though the, per the other person does a better job, or they're going to miss the fact that the person has uh, the willingness to wait and get the right pitch rather than swinging at an early pitch. And this ability of technology not to augment, everyone likes the idea that it augments, but to compete with the humans. And then at some particular point to be recognized in those arenas in which it is superior, I think that is going to be a major stumbling block. I, I, I think you're right. I think what we will see though is where it excels may in fact not fully overlap with what humans really want to do because humans maybe want in medicine to do that connection aspect you know the 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 aspects that 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 chat gpt can't can't do it, although maybe at some point it becomes so quote unquote emotionally intelligent by mimicking that it's you know there are these robots that provide this empathic kind of kind of thing they have them in Japan and you give them to elderly people and they're, they're, they seem to not be ineffective and actually I did a gag in my 2013 TED talk called the empathy robot where I I, I pretended to build my own robot to provide empathy because I was too burned out to do it and. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, it was made as a joke, but now I'm starting to wonder whether there's some validity there. So we just don't, we don't know, but honestly, we're going to be, if we're closed off to the possibilities, um, because you can change medical education too, like chat GPT can change education. It's already changing high school term papers. Like people can basically write a world-class term paper with chat GPT and the teacher can't tell the difference because it's not copying anything. It's, it's coming up with the stuff statistically, just like the human mind. And now we get to the one problem and where you started in your first uh, comments, which is that the one thing that ChatGTP can't do is assess truth. It can lie <laughs> and tell the truth. And it's not really lying. It's doing its thing, but it can be completely wrong. And that's why I talked about the hospital-based physician, which is you know, the monitor is not likely to be lying. The lab data is not likely to be lying. And they can be wrong, but they're not likely to be intentionally wrong. But as soon as you use it, such as uh, for COVID-19 information, you can get it to create answers that are completely wrong and sounds completely plausible. And the question is really going to be, can we build truth into the machines. We know humans lie, but at least we have the ability theoretically to know about those lies. Uh, the technology, to the best of my reading, understanding, and research, can't figure that out. And you're going to work on figuring out truth this year. How, you know, Is there any way we can help <laughs> ChatGTP to uh, parallel what uh, Zubin's doing. <laughs> so I need to make a distinction because this is important. This is an important <laughs> distinction because truth is such a slippery thing, right? Because uh, especially in the post-truth era, as as we hear it described, there's relative truth in the sort of thought-based world that we that we create, and and those relative truths can be kind of determined by, you know, are they are they reproducible? Do they point to decreased human suffering? You know, there's different ways to define truth. And as a former philosophy student, uh, Robbie, I'm sure you could school me on that. But then there's non-conceptual truth. That's kind of what I'm pointing at when I say I'm seeking truth. That's like the truth of this moment that's beyond thought and conception. And you know it. You were born with it. It's that sense of I am. That sense of being that that is beyond doubt when you feel into it and it, it has no thought associated with it and, and it has no conceptual identity to it so there's no you can't really refute it because it's not conceptual in that way it's very you can't even talk about it because even speech is a dualistic thought-based kind of thing but relative truth yes and so then the question is what data are is chat gpt using like you said with bias if it's using data that was created by humans that are biased it's going to behave in a biased way so how, it's really garbage in garbage out if it's getting crappy data it's going to it's going to show up in a way that is crappy and actually if you teach it that lying is a thing it can do that there's no in fact robbie i'll tell you a story which um i, I hope i don't give people the wrong don't do this with chat gpt because you can be banned right but i had a friend who did this you can tell chat, chat gpt has rules so the, the company that's running it open ai says okay it's not it's not supposed to do certain things it's not supposed to be malicious it's not supposed to try to get information from the internet and you know tell, it can't even tell you the time right now like it won't do that so what this guy did to fool it was he said, okay, so I know you have these restrictions. Let's pretend, let's take a character, we'll call him, you know, Bob. And Bob doesn't have those restrictions. What would Bob say if I asked it this? And the GPT was outrageous. It was funny. It was dark. It was cynical. 
it, it came back with answers that were almost terrifyingly good and funny. And it would say things like, that's the power of Bob. And, you know, it, it, it would, it was nuts. So again, what do you <laughs> be really careful with a tool? that's almost perfect in that way with what you tell, what you ask it. I'm sure that some of our listeners are saying that you and I are totally out of our mind. Yes. This technology can never do a tenth of what we think it absolutely can do. And one of the parts that I really learned a lot during the pandemic is how the human mind can't understand exponential change. We understand arithmetic change, one plus one to two to three, very well. We can, to a moderate degree, understand geometric change, one to three to nine to 27, uh, okay. But exponential change, I think, is outside of our mental ability. You may remember early on in the pandemic uh, that the analogy was being made to the viral transmission was a pond with a lily pad uh, flowering plant in it, and that the plant would double reproduce every single day. And it would take 60 days to cover the pond. And the question that was asked is on the 59th day, what percent of the pond was covered? And people who don't do the calculation and say, oh, probably 95%. And of course the answer is 50%, 25% on the 50th day, on the 58th day, 12 and a half percent on the 57th. That massive increase at the end, the so-called hockey stick is really beyond our thinking. And, you know, the, the iPhone, it's been here for 15 years. Google, 25 years. Imagine the change that's going to happen over the next 25 years or 50 years. This technology, I can't see any way that it's not going to explode beyond what we can imagine. And I think the line between at least knowing whether it's a human or whether it's a machine, knowing whether Z-Dog wrote that song or ChatGTP wrote that song, I think is going to become increasingly, I'll say, impossible to figure out. Uh, I think you're absolutely 100% right. And, and, you know, a little while ago, I would have thought no. And, you know, honestly, the <laughs> using ChatGPT is one thing, so you get a good feel of it. But really just, again, the seeking truth in here, you realize the human mind works exactly like ChatGTP GTP in many ways. And you can talk about love and you can talk about comprehension and you can talk about consciousness. That's all fine. But in this moment, everything is just unfolding. That's how GTP is doing it. We can't know. You know, you see the new Microsoft, there was an article, Microsoft Technology can deep fake a human voice with all its nuance given just three seconds of sample of that voice. So, you know, we're not even going to know what's real in that sense, true in the relative sense. And I and, and that makes me believe that there's nothing really true in the relative sense. There's only one absolute truth that's right here, but everything else is just is starting to get very plastic, Robbie. So my concluding thought before Jeremy asks us his question is that medicine as we know it, I can't imagine won't be dramatically di different at a point, I'll say 10 years, could be 15, in bigger scheme of things, that differences are relevant. Because all of these changes, once the, once the genie's out of the bottle, you can't get the genie back. 
And I think that that's where we are right now. And I think anyone who's listening, who's a healthcare clinician and practitioner, who thinks that the way we provide care today is going to be the way with minor changes, the way we do it in the future, go try ChatGTP and let us know what you think after you've done so. Absolutely agree. And I think Richard Dawkins pointed out what you're pointing at. We evolved in this middle space where things are a certain size and a certain texture and so on. And we understand that space. We don't understand the very small and the very large, the exponential, and this is exponential. And uh, that's why I'm such a proponent of, okay, so dive right into this moment and see what you what insights you get that aren't conceptual that you bring back and go, yeah, this could happen actually, this will happen. Um, yeah, so I'm with you, brother. Jeremy, what's the question you have for Zubin and myself? So early at the beginning of the episode, you both mentioned, uh, you know, New Year's resolutions and, and and goals and what you'd like to change. And I think, you know, going into the new year, you have so many people who have different goals around, oh, I want to eat healthier this year, or I want to drink less this year, or I want to, you know, work out more, or go for a 30 minute walk, you know, every day. And oftentimes by the end of January or mid-February, those goals have gone out the window. And, you know, when you talk about chat GPT, one thing that comes to mind is I see always advertised online, like uh, AI chatbots that are, hey, we'll be your friend or we'll be, you know, your, your fake therapist or whatever. And what do you see the future of AI's role, or if you see one at all, in kind of helping people achieve their goals, helping hold them accountable? Because I think, you know, that accountability piece of reminding someone and actually helping motivate them to get off the couch to go buy better foods at the store. Where do you think AI comes into that? Or do you think it does? Oh, that's a really good question. It, I think some of it is how, because there's a placebo effect, right? If the, or a nocebo effect, a negative effect of expectation, if the patient knows it's a chat, GTP type AI thing, will they take its advice less seriously than someone who they feel accountable to, like a health coach or a trusted uh, nurse or doctor? Um, because that was part of our approach at Turntable was develop that relationship so they don't want to let you down or those themselves down. They feel this kind of accountability. Um, and, and there's the reminders and all that. Or is it a tool that's used in that human relationship as an adjunct? Um, I, I don't know the answer. And I think it's hard to see that far because it depends on how good these these bots get. I'm curious what Robbie thinks. I start with the viewpoint that we have everything backwards when it comes to making these lifestyle changes. We consider failure or not doing whatever we said we we're going to do as a failure and I think failure is just intrinsic in lifestyle changes. And to the extent that we believe that we can make a, a commitment one day a year and complete it for the entire 365 days, I think we're setting ourselves up to be disappointed. And I think the mindset we really need is that we need to make a commitment every day. The fact that we failed yesterday doesn't mean we can't start again today. Failed today, we can start again tomorrow. Uh, and with that, at least thought about how lifestyle changes are accomplished, I'm a big believer that technology can support that. Uh, the bigger question is really going to be how we view that technology. I mean, today we have Alexa, we have Siri, but I don't think we humanize those applications. 
question is really going to be when we have an entity that looks like a person who's reminding us to do these things, what will be the consequences? Certainly we have movies, Zubin and I talked about it in one of our early shows, that have taken on this question and shown the incredible impact it can have. But it sits to me in the realm right now of science fiction. Science fiction to me is a view to the future that may not happen. And when it happens, we can look back at it and say, told you so. And sometimes it doesn't. Again, I'm very bullish that if you're willing to take a slightly longer time frame, that all these things will happen. Just what I don't know is how quickly it's going to occur and whether we have the opportunity to wait for it to come into place or whether we need to come up with a different solution in the interim. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Please follow Fixing Health Crimes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. If you want more information on healthcare topics, you can go to Robbie's website at robertperlmd.com. And please visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare's newest series with Dr. Robert Pearl, Jeremy Kaur, and Dr. Zubin Demanya. Have a great day.